look around and look around and you will see all kinds of people here this morning, won't you? Men and women, children and adults, married and single, widowed, divorced, those never married. And also you'll see here those who've been divorced and remarried and yes, those thinking about divorce. Every one of us knows someone divorced, probably has someone in their family who's been affected by divorce. Divorce, the subject of Jesus' debate with the Pharisees, is a live issue for us. And of course, there are varying views on it in the Christian community. Some will say no divorce ever. Some divorce for some situations, but no remarriage. Others divorce in some circumstances and remarriage permitted in those circumstances and still others Divorce and remarriage in all circumstances. So what our Lord teaches here is of interest to many of us. And, of course, that's what many focus on in this passage, what our Lord has to say about divorce. But I want to step a little back from that and instead ask what does this passage say about the community of Jesus and its commitments? For there's a lot more here than Jesus' teaching on divorce and part of his response to the Pharisees is a criticism of their focus on the question of the grounds for divorce. So that's what we'll be thinking about. What does this passage say about the community of Jesus and its commitments, commitments that should be ours if we are to be together his people, disciples who do all that he has taught us? But first... Let's start off looking at the context uh, in which Jesus is giving this teaching. Now, when Jesus had finished these sayings, he went away from Galilee and entered the region of Judea beyond the Jordan, and large crowds followed him, and he healed them there. So Jesus is on his way now down to Jerusalem, and he's chosen not to travel through Samaria, but down the other side of the Jordan River, what was called Perea, a region occupied by the Jews and ruled over by Herod, the same Herod who ruled Galilee, the same Herod who had put John the Baptist in prison for criticising his marriage to Herodias, his brother Philip's wife. So having opinions about what constituted a lawful divorce and remarriage and making them known was not without risk in this region. And knowing this, some Pharisees come and ask Jesus, Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? And it says they ask him this to test him. Now that could be to test his faithfulness to scripture, to the law in the face of Herod's threat, or more likely to test his understanding of scripture in the context of a very active debate amongst the Pharisees of the circumstances under which a man could divorce his wife. And I do mean a man. Amongst the Jews, the man could initiate divorce, the woman couldn't. That wasn't the case with their Gentile neighbours. There, the wife, as well as the man, could initiate what we would call divorce. And the ESV has, uh, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? And that any cause makes it sound like they're asking Jesus about whether divorce itself can ever be right under any circumstances. But that actually was not the issue for them. Divorce had long been practised and long accepted amongst the Jews for all sorts of reasons. Moses talked about it. But relatively recently, the understanding of the reasons for divorce 
had been thrown into turmoil with one school of rabbis, the school of a bloke called Hillel, saying that a man could divorce his wife for any reason, a kind of no-fault divorce. And that understanding had been opposed by another prominent school of rabbis, the school of Shammai. And so the NIV translation there is better. Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason? You see, the debate is not about whether divorce was lawful, but about the causes of, the reasons for a lawful divorce. And this debate had centred around the interpretation of a phrase in Deuteronomy 24, a passage, as you heard, where Moses regulates the practice of divorce to protect a woman from casual divorce and protect the community from defilement. If a man marries a woman but she becomes displeasing to him because he finds something indecent about her. That's what they were debating. The meaning of that phrase, he finds something indecent about her, which could be understood as a matter of indecency or any matter including indecency. And the school of Hillel said that this gave two grounds for divorce any matter and indecency. So they said this permitted the husband to divorce his wife on the grounds of anything the husband found displeasing in his wife, if she was disobedient or she burnt his breakfast. Uh, Josephus, the Jewish historian, first century historian, wrote, at this period I divorced my wife, being displeased at her behaviour. A Hillel like divorce. In fact, one later rabbi in the school, a man called Akiba, had famously said, even if he found someone else prettier than she, since it says, it shall be if she find no favour in his eyes, even if she finds somebody prettier, he can divorce her. Now, the school of Shammai was stricter in their interpretation of the phrase. They said it's a matter of indecency which they understood to only involve some form of proven sexual immorality. So this was a live debate. Although the rabbinic courts that governed the life of the people of Judah, the rabbinic courts of the school of Hillel and their concept of no fault diverse were, unsurprisingly, gaining popularity amongst the people as the place to go if you wanted to divorce your wife. Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason? Well, how does Jesus respond when he's invited to buy into this debate? He said, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, therefore a man shall leave his father, father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh? So they're no longer two but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. Uh, Jesus' basic response is that the Pharisees' whole focus, their acceptance of divorce and preoccupation with the grounds of divorce was wrong. And to show them that, he takes them back to Genesis and God's creating of humanity and his gift of marriage. God, Genesis 1.27, has made humanity, says Jesus, as male and female from the beginning, complementary to each other. 
And this was done so that together they could fulfill his command and be fruitful and multiply, which was necessary if humanity was going to rule the earth. Fulfill his command through the one flesh union of marriage between a man and a woman spoken of by, says Jesus in Genesis 2.24. You see, neither male nor female, man or woman, is adequate in themselves to discharge God's commission. It really isn't good that the man should be alone. So God, the creator, gave humanity marriage. And it is marriage God is talking about in Genesis 2, anticipating later society by saying, a man shall leave his father and mother, because plainly that did not apply to Adam. Now, at the heart of marriage is, by God's design, says Jesus, a one flesh union. The very nature of that union, the way it's described as one flesh, tells us that it's designed to be exclusive. Two can become one, not three. And it's intended to be permanent. It's not designed to be reversible. And our Lord emphasises that in verse 6. So they're no longer two but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. In creating us the way we are, male and female, and in giving us sexual union in marriage as the means of multiplying, of transmitting the image of God through the union of two who are each in the image of God. Our Lord says it's God who joins together every husband and wife in their one flesh union. And this is something he says no human should seek to disrupt or separate. Even the language of separation of what's one communicates the pain of that separation. And I've used the ESV deliberately that says, let man not separate instead of no one because it actually heightens the contrast. You see, joining is the work of God, the creator. How could a human, a creature, seek to undo the work of God? So the first part of Jesus' response is marriage is designed to be permanent and people, men and women, are designed for permanent marriages. Looking for reasons to divorce, to separate a husband and wife, is to set yourself against God. Now, what can we learn of Jesus' community from his answer? Well, firstly, if we follow the Lord Jesus, we are committed to God speaking in his word. Did you notice our Lord directs them to the written word, the written text of Genesis? Have you not read? And then he says that the words of Genesis 2.24, not put into the mouth of God in the Genesis text, but the words of the human author of Genesis are spoken by God. He who created them, male and female, made them and said, for Jesus, what is written in Genesis is what the living God has said. And so to be the community of King Jesus, the Son of God, is to share his commitment to Scripture, which here is our Old Testament, his commitment to the written word of Scripture being the word of the living God, what God says. And secondly, to be the community of the King is to be committed to the will of the Creator revealed in his creating. Because Genesis is the word of God, we have in it the maker's understanding of humanity and the relationship of men and women, humanity as it is designed to be. Here we find God's will for humanity. 
Going back to creation for our understanding of humanity is something our Lord teaches us to do. That's true for marriage, as we see here. And it's true for the relationship of men and women in the church, as we see Paul doing in 1 Corinthians 11 and 1 Timothy 2. In going to creation, to the Genesis account, he is only following our Lord's example. And it's the way we should be approaching other modern debates, say about sex and gender. That's a much bigger discussion. But we go back to creation where we see sex is binary. God creates male and female, two sexes, no third option, and those two sexes then find expression in the text in two genders, man and woman, terms that overlap with husband and wife, complementary and distinct, not points on a spectrum. Two genders in a complementary relation to each other at the foundation of all human families and societies. Now, as I said, that's a bigger discussion, happy to have it. But to go back to Genesis for the creator's understanding of the way we are made to be and function is something our Lord teaches. Thirdly, the community of King Jesus is committed to the permanency of marriage and so to the sustaining of marriages. That's our starting point. Now, we know there are all kinds of complications brought on by sin and Jesus is about to deal with some of them. But God's intention is that our marriages be exclusive and permanent. And so as a community, our goal has to be to foster marriages that are exclusive and permanent amongst those of us who are married. And, of course, that starts with accepting that that is the way marriage is meant to be and then being committed to that goal for our own marriages. And so when we have difficulties, we don't start by looking for ways out. We make it a priority to overcome, to resolve the difficulty, and to being committed to do what it takes to keep us together. For it is God's will our marriages are permanent. Now that might mean seeking out help to keep us together. It always means listening to our husband or wife, not ignoring or dismissing their concerns and not just listening but being committed to change. You know, change, dealing with that anger, all that laziness, all that tiredness from being overcommitted, whatever is the burr under the saddle rug of your marriage, right? Being able, say, to come to a common mind about things like finances, It means, of course, also that none of us ever seek to intrude on one another's one flesh relationship. None of us seeks to foster an intimacy with someone else's husband or wife. And where we find it developing, we flee from it. And above all, it means fostering in ourselves and in each other that faith in Jesus that can live Jesus' way. The kind of relating, say, described in Ephesians 4, where we speak the truth to one another and don't lie, where we don't harbour anger, we don't foster it, let the sun go down on it, where we speak to each other respectfully in ways that will build each other up, where we are compassionate and forgiving. The faith in Jesus that can show itself in being committed to the attitude God's word tells us husbands and wives should practice to each other. Wives voluntarily ordering their lives so as they're not competing with their husbands, but submitting. 
Husbands voluntarily ordering their lives to pursue their wives' interests above their own. That is, loving their wives as Christ loved the church. Being the community of King Jesus means being committed to the permanency of marriage and so to the sustaining of our marriages. Now, if you think these comments uh, about you know these commitments, if you think with that I've strayed from the question of divorce that the Pharisees raise, you of course are not alone. That is what the Pharisees thought Jesus was doing with his answer. And so they bring him back to the issue by bringing his attention to another part of the scripture. Why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away? It's like they're saying, look, Jesus, it's all right for you to say we have our focus wrong because God's intention for marriage is exclusive permanence. And, you know, you can quote Genesis at us, but that's not the whole teaching of Scripture. If it was, why does God command divorce or a procedure for divorce? You see, they're again referring to Deuteronomy 24, the only place in the law that speaks of a certificate of divorce, certificates that in the time of Jesus explicitly said the woman was free to remarry. In fact, that freedom was the essence of divorce, the freedom to remarry. Well, uh, Jesus hears them, but then he corrects them. Because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives, but from the beginning it was not so. Moses, he observed, didn't command divorce. He was allowing it because of their sin, regulating their practice to prevent worse sin. And he again points them to what he's just said, that divorce was never God's intention. From the beginning, his intention was that the one flesh union of a husband and wife might be permanent. And in light of this, in light of what God intended from the beginning, Jesus now actually answers their question, makes comment on their debate about the matter of indecency. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. Notice that, only for sexual immorality. So Jesus rejects the school of Hillel's no-fault divorce. Uh, sexual immorality, which is a, a broad term that covers any sexual activity outside the marriage of a man and a woman, all those sexual activities listed in Leviticus 18. You see, sexual immorality has already broken the one flesh union, separated what God has joined together. And so here the divorce, the divorce recognises the destruction already done by the immoral party. And where there is divorce for sexual immorality, the subsequent remarriage, says our Lord, is not adulterous. For the divorce is not, as, not what is breaking the union. That's already happened. Then the purpose of divorce, remember, has always been to allow the divorced person to remarry. That was the case for divorces in the Old Testament. Deuteronomy is actually regulating remarriage. So where divorce is allowed remarriage is allowed. But there are divorces which do seek to separate what God has joined together, which of course is not in their power. Divorces because, for example, the husband is displeased with his wife 
And the remarriages after these divorces, says our Lord, is adulterous. The legal process does not protect from sin. In these cases, divorce is sin because it breaks that bond and it leads to more sin, adultery, for God's intention is that marriages be permanent. The logic of Jesus' response is clear and so is his rejection of no-fault divorce. But remember, Jesus is here only addressing one circumstance where the husband is taking the initiative to divorce his wife. Matthew 19 is not a complete comprehensive discussion of divorce. It establishes the fundamental principle and applies it to the question being debated by the Pharisees, but there are actually lots of other circumstances in life that engage divorce. For example, the Lord Jesus was never asked by someone who had been divorced against their will whether they could remarry. What about the unwilling, the unwillingly divorced, the wife who has been sent away maybe for spoiling the breakfast and whose divorce certificate contained an explicit permission to remarry? Would God allow that? Or does Jesus' teaching means that she should not remarry, that because she's been sinned against, her husband, her sinning husband, has given her the gift of singleness? Is, is that what our Lord is thinking here. Well, thankfully, we don't need to guess because the Apostle Paul addresses the issue of the believer who has been unwillingly divorced in 1 Corinthians 7. Now, the context is slightly different. Corinth was a Roman colony and so women as well as men could initiate divorce and divorce was, in those societies, no fault. For the Romans, where there was no mutual consent in favour of continuing the marriage, there was sufficient grounds for divorce because they thought mutual consent essential. And that divorce was enacted by the act of either leaving the home or if the husband owned the house, the husband sending the wife away from the home. That is, it was no-fault divorce by unilateral separation. Now Paul makes it clear in uh, ooh, yeah, Paul makes it clear in verses twelve to fourteen that the believer <coughs> is not to initiate the divorce. If any brother has an unbelieving wife and she's willing to live with him, he must not divorce her. <coughs> but what's the believer to do if the unbeliever leaves? That is, if the unbeliever divorces the believer and the believer is now unwillingly divorced. Well, what does Paul say in verse 15? He says the believer is not bound, right? If the unbeliever leaves, thanks, if the unbeliever leaves, let him leave. A brother or a sister is not bound in such cases. God has called you to live in peace. Now, notice that. He says they're not bound. By saying that, he is actually saying they are free. He's using the language of ancient divorce certificates. They're no longer bound in marriage and so free to remarry whoever they wish. 
Although later in the chapter, Paul will encourage them to think carefully about whether that's wise and insist it can only be to a believer. But again, there is no inconsistency for the departing spouse has broken the one flesh bond by their departure, their unilateral divorcing of their partner. Now, are there other circumstances that destroy the one flesh union that are not addressed by these references to sexual immorality and desertion, but which would mean remarriage after divorce was acceptable? For example, Jesus is never asked questions like this. Lord, my husband is beating me. Do I have to stay married to him? Lord, my husband is withholding what I need to live on from me. So controlling of it that I live in poverty. Do I have to keep living with him? My husband is cruelly demeaning and degrading me. Can I leave him? Divorce him. Jesus is never asked those kind of questions. And many point out that the Lord Jesus in Matthew 19 was responding to what was in dispute between the Pharisaic schools and not talking about the position on the divorce they both shared in common. And what they shared in common was an agreement that the teaching of the law in Exodus 21 that protected the rights of what we might think of as a lesser wife, a woman purchased by a man to be either his wife or the wife of his sons, also protected the rights of wives. If a man takes an additional wife, he must not reduce the food, clothing or marital rights of the first wife. And if he does not do these three things for her, she may leave free of charge without any payment. You see, the wives in uh, Exodus 21 are not exactly the same as concubines in the Gentile world, nor did they have the same status as a wife, right? They didn't have that same status. But they had rights, as we see here, protected by the law of God, rights to marital provision, material provision, (coughs) and conjugal rights to love and to children. Where these were not honoured, verse 11, she was free to leave the relationship. And the rabbis argued, all of them, from the lesser to the greater, that if these things were true for a concubine, it would also be true for a full-status wife, that where a husband failed to provide these three things to a wife, she could leave the marriage. And while wives could not initiate divorce, the rabbis actually allowed the wife to go to court to get the court to compel the neglectful husband to divorce them. A clumsy procedure, infrequent, but it happened and it was allowed. Now, the Lord Jesus doesn't comment on this, but we should note that it is actually these things, provision of care to nourish and cherish, that Paul says in Ephesians 5 should be the expression of a husband's love for his wife. No one ever hates his own flesh, but provides and cares for it, nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church. Where these things are not present, the husband's actually already broken the one flesh union by repudiating its substance. 
care for and love of his wife. And that's why neglect and cruelty are seen as grounds for a divorce that recognising at divorce that, recognising that the other party has already broken the one flesh relationship, allows remarriage. Now, we need to be clear because some abusers will misuse scripture. They'll say to their Christian wives, you can't leave me, you can't divorce, you're a Christian, you've got to stay married. Or they'll say, you have to do what I say because I'm the head. But you see, God's intention that marriages be permanent, reflecting his character of faithfulness and steadfast love in covenant relationship, was never meant to be a chain to bind someone to cruelty. Like the Sabbath, it's given for our good, not our harm. (coughs) And the husband being the head is never about the husband controlling his wife but about loving her as Christ loved the church. And love enriches and strengthens. It does not undermine and belittle. And we have to be clear. The husband who misuses scriptures like that is a hypocrite. Telling their wife what God's will is for them, but themselves not doing God's will. In fact, it's even worse seeking to use God and his word to get their own way, to promote their own power and ego. And remember, God hates hypocrites. We should remember that and be clear, shouldn't we? So God's clear will is that, yes, marriages should be permanent. He has created them to be a one flesh union. And Jesus' people are to be a community committed to the permanence of marriages. But some things break that one flesh union. Sexual immorality, desertion or unilateral divorce and informed by scripture we should say neglect and cruelty. In these cases divorce is permitted. It recognises what is the reality of the non-relationship. Even if in the case of an adulterous spouse, a couple may still be living under the same roof. And where divorce is permitted, then remarriage is not adulterous. The divorced person is free to remarry. Divorce, of course, is permitted, not commanded. And someone, you know, who's committed adultery or who's abandoned a spouse, who's, you know, or abused them, may be brought to conviction and repent and seek reconciliation. But the breakdown of trust is profound. And while we must forgive, we're the community of the forgiven. While we must forgive the repentant, full reconciliation, the resumption of intimacy, which is actually based on trust, may not be immediate if ever. The assumption that may depend on the demonstration of repentance and that takes time and in my limited experience it is difficult and it always needs help. Don't try it on your own. Now, of course, that's not the end of it. We live in a messy world and our lives can be, are messy. 
What about someone who wrongly divorces their wife or husband and marries another? And somewhere in that or after that, they're brought under conviction of sin and they turn to the Lord Jesus. What should they do? Should they reckon their marriage is adulterous and leave it? Even seek to be reconciled to their wrongly divorced former partner, though that might have happened years ago. This is where we have to remind ourselves that the Lord Jesus is not giving us a rule book that describes how to behave in every conceivable situation. And it's also where we have to remember, as we saw last week, that the community of those committed to the permanency of marriage as Jesus' people is also the community of the greatly forgiven. There is forgiveness for adultery, as there is forgiveness for all sins. There was forgiveness for David, the adulterer and murderer. Our Lord's already said in the gospel, people will be forgiven for all sins and whatever blasphemies they utter, except blasphemies against the Spirit. And remember, we are forgiven by grace, not by our capacity to put things right, which may not be possible now, even if it was ever. As believers, in all our circumstances, we have to hold on to that forgiveness and then think about how our forgiving and gracious Lord wants us to obey him now in our current circumstances, not what we think he would have wanted us to do back then. Now, if you want to talk about your particular circumstances, come and talk with one of the pastors. But if you've repented and trusted the Lord Jesus, you are forgiven graciously, freely, fully. And he has given you his spirit to help you live as his follower. But the standard Jesus sets for simple people living together, a permanent exclusive union, if you think about it, and I'm sure most of you actually have, is very high. Things go wrong. Marriages come under strain from events that can be overwhelming. People change. And there are very few things as miserable as a miserable marriage. You can't get away from a miserable marriage. And to feel unloved in your own home, well, it's like an ache in the bones. And then think about Jesus' first hearers. Their marriages were arranged. And in Galilee, a bride-to-be and her intended were never meant to be alone together before the wedding. So it's not like Jesus' disciples say it had an opportunity to work out if they even liked each other's company. And now Jesus was saying, however it worked out, you know, whether you landed with someone you like or you landed with someone you just couldn't get on with, that was it. You're married permanently. And so the disciples make a realistic observation about his ruling out of no-fault divorce. If such is the case of a man with his wife, it's better not to marry. Now, some people think that's cynical. It's not cynical. It's more like an argument against Jesus' position in a society where all were expected to be married, with a few exceptions, like a wilderness prophet like John the Baptist or temporary abstinence to follow a rabbi, where all were expected to be married and where having children was a sacred duty. But Jesus responds by saying that marriage is not a duty for all. 
Not everyone can receive this saying, but only those to whom he's given. For there are eunuchs who have been so from birth, and there are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by men, and there are eunuchs who have made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. Let the one who's able to receive this receive it. Now, did you notice the word eunuch? Five times, as it is in the original. That's deliberate on Jesus' part. Deliberate to shock because the Jews rejected and detested that kind of mutilation. But eunuchs were actually the only category of people, the only recognisable group who were free in that society from the obligation of marriage. (coughs) So there's several subsets. There's a recognition that there are some born with no or ambiguous genitalia, then as now, what we might characterise as intersex conditions. Oh, and there's recognition that amongst the Gentiles, the pagans, there was the cruel practice of castrating young boys so they could fulfil certain roles in the courts of kings, like guarding the harem. But Jesus introduces a third category, those who make themselves eunuchs for the kingdom of heaven. That is, those who abstain from marriage for the sake of obedience to God. Now, now that, by the way, just tells you how valuable obedience to God is. That it's actually worth giving up the prospect of marriage and children, that kind of community in this life, for what God promises. But Jesus is not talking about self-mutilation here. Of course, he's talking about voluntary abstinence, self-desire. And the kingdom is not a thing. It's God's sovereign authority, his rule. The Lord is telling his disciples that we should not take it for granted that it's God's will everyone be married. For some, obedience to Jesus will be abstaining from marriage, either for a time or permanently, And this is not less honourable than being married. Of course, it's not for everyone. It's voluntary. Let the one who is able to receive this receive it. But our Lord says it is a real option for some. In fact, as we know, St Paul thought that staying single could make you more useful in the service of Jesus, more able to be single-mindedly devoted to the Lord. So as well as being a community committed to the permanency of marriages and the sustaining of our marriages, the community of King Jesus is a community committed to honourable singleness, to single lives lived in obedience to the Lord Jesus. And we need to recognise that. Chaste singleness is a real live option for disciples of Jesus. And just as we honour and support marriages, we should support those who are living single lives in obedience to Jesus. And that includes many in our congregations. Some because they're honouring our Lord's command that they should only marry believers and they haven't found that believer yet. Some because they're widowed or divorced. Some because there's some work the Lord Jesus has called them to which makes it wise for them to remain single for now so they can devote themselves to that work. Some because the circumstances of their lives, employment, accommodation, instability, health, visa circumstances make it unwise to take on the commitment of marriage now. 
There are many ways in which people are committed to being single as a follower of the Lord Jesus, to living that chaste life out of love for and obedience to him. And together we need to support them. We shouldn't say leave single people just to mix with single people as if their singleness excludes them from the lives of the rest of us. That may be attractive when we're, you know, 18 to 22, but it's not attractive when you're 50. And here the initiative really is with those of us who marry. So ask yourself, which single people are routinely part of your life? Who are you including in family festivities? In holidays, how are you thinking of making single people at ease with you and in your home? Are you conscious of what single people might find difficult, like having to isolate or being sick when they're on their own? Would they feel free to ring you up for a hand when they're in need? The community of the king is a community committed to honourable singleness. And so think, could you do better at supporting your single brothers and sisters? And brothers and sisters, don't try and answer that question without talking to a single brother or sister about what might help them. And if you have no one to ask, well, you've answered the question, haven't you? The community of King Jesus committed to God speaking in his word, committed to the will of the creator revealed in his creating, committed to the permanency of marriage and so to the sustaining of marriages, committed to honourable singleness. Now those are challenging commitments where we live in a world that is in rebellion to God and we are always needing to put sin to death in ourselves. But the community of Jesus with those commitments is a good community to belong to, made up of all different kinds of people, men and women, married and single, divorced and widowed. It's a community where our creator has revealed his will for our lives and we know his will is good. And it's a community where we engage with those commitments as the people of the king, that is, as those who know they are forgiven already by Jesus, those who know and are sustained by his love for them, for his people, his bride, the love that is faithful and steadfast and does nourish and cherishes us. The community of people who have been given by Jesus the spirit of God that moves us to love his will and frees us to do it. Oh, the community who live with the great hope of sharing in the marriage feast of the Lamb, where married or single, we will find our fulfilment. And that is our goal. So, brothers and sisters, let's show we are Jesus' people, a people who can encourage each other to honour our Saviour in whatever state or stage of life we're in, a, a community that can strengthen and support our marriages. And yes, a community that can thoughtfully include and encourage 
our single brothers and sisters in their devotion to the Lord Jesus, a community where all of us live lives of loving truth for the sake of the kingdom, for the sake of Jesus.